I was definitely the most people-centric person, but they really, really appreciated people. They didn't approach it the same way. That wasn't true of my previous bosses necessarily. They treated people as if they were disposable. That does not go with me. So I found myself buffering my people from them. I knew they didn't care. Mm-hmm. It drove me crazy they didn't care. But I made it work in my organization. Here, they cared. Day one. Day one. Welcome to the Rising Leader Podcast, where being a high achiever doesn't necessarily equate to being an effective leader. Let's check to see if you're in the right place. If you're rising through the ranks of your organization so fast that your leadership skills need to grow as fast as your responsibilities, you're in the right place. If it seems you need different skills to lead your team or lead from within a group of talented, competitive peers, you're in the right place. If you're looking to become a trusted advisor to the CEO, you are definitely in the right place. So now that we know that you're in the right place, enjoy today's conversation. Before we begin, I have something for you. Have you not read Only Tens 2.0 yet? If you've been listening to the show, my guess is you have read it. Would you like to give away a copy to someone you care about, someone who's struggling with time and energy management, someone who needs to focus on the important things? Well, if you go to markjsilverman.com, click on the red resource buttons, we have put a free copy of Only Tens 2.0 for you to download, and you can upload it onto your electronic device of choice. I hope you enjoy. So way back when, years and years ago, I made a list of the 10 things I learned from Tom Mendoza. And I I put it out in in the world. And Tom and I were just talking and realized that I never thought about leadership. I never thought about being a leadership coach. I never thought of myself as a leader. The things that Tom taught me were ways that I wanted to be in business, in relationship with my children, and just in the world. So I realized that now, you know, years later, that this leadership thing is about being the kind of human being that people need you to be in order to get an organization, in order to get a group, in order to get your children where they want you to be. Several years ago, Tom and I did episode Mastering Midlife. And we have gotten so much mileage out of it over and over again. We produced the video. We put out the podcast again on The Rising Leader. And we get so much good feedback that Tom and I decided we wanted to have another conversation. So this very important man to me officially is currently a board member of Veronis, Vast Data. He's a former board member for an investor at Unipath and Security Scorecard. How I knew him was as the former president and vice chairman of NetApp, a hybrid cloud data service and management company that has been ranked on the Fortune 500 since 2012. After 25 years with NetApp, Tom has re- you know semi-retired, kind of, kind of, but he's 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 out in the world. But he's talking about culture. He's talking about leadership, and he talks to some of the most powerful groups in the world. Tom, thank you for being on the show. Mark, my pleasure, man. Oi. We, we, get to, we get to create some really cool <laughs> stuff. So I just watched a video of you addressing your beloved Notre Dame football team. You know, you and I have talked about the difference between networking and actually building relationships. And you actually, you were talking to the football players about that. Let's start there. Let's talk about, you know, your interest in people and how you've used that for success. Yeah, I, I'm aware that especially young people, um, oftentimes aren't sure about how to create these relationships. They don't want to bother people. But you go to a place like University of Notre Dame, because it has put out so many interesting people from all over the world, and you want to build, they always talk about a network. And the main point I wanted to make is, I don't, I don't honestly don't even like the term networking. 
Because if I get invited to a networking event, I don't go. I hadn't even thought about it, but I don't. I don't want something from somebody. I'm not there to hand out. I never was. I didn't show up because it might make a connection for me. I hit on somebody to help me in business. But if you said to me, and you, you and I have been together like this, there's going to be 10 interesting people tonight. You want to come? Yeah. This is what life's about. So the main point I was making to the guys is, look, we're here to help you with this. We're here to help you know introduce you to people. But at the end of the day, you, it's about if you put it in your mind, everybody likes to have relationships. But you don't want to be in this networking thing. And so relationships to me are very simple. You do it because you have an interest in people. You know, Mark, my friends have four things in common that I believe my relationships all follow this track. Number one, they, if you mistreat a waiter, I don't want to know you. They're all very nice people to other people. They're respectful. They're kind. Number two, they're happy for other people's success. Number three, they're interested and interesting. You say, what's up to something up? That's why we have relationships. And number four, they got to be fun. It's <laughs> fun. Who needs you? So all of my relationships are, and I said, they've all broke. That's why you have friends. So if you approach it that way, it's a lot less intimidating and a lot more rewarding. You, you've said that your success is, is because of your interest in people. When, you, mm-hmm. when, you, when you're coaching and mentoring people, how do you help them see that? Because you know some people are naturally that way. A lot of right. people aren't. And a lot of people, especially when you're in fear. So if you're in a really high pressure, pressure situation, which a lot of the companies that both of us have worked at are, you know, you're not at your best. So your interest in other people isn't natural. You're trying to survive. How do you help make them, you know, make that shift? Well, first of all, I think it's important to remember that having relationships helps you survive. Yeah, I remember I used to speak, at, as you know, at New All Hand, excuse me, at a new hire for NetApp a lot. And I would be talking to a Mark Silverman who's in Washington. He's just starting. I'll say, you know what? Here's three other people that have a similar, had a similar challenge. They're in about six months and they're doing really well. You should connect with them. I did it all the time. You're a new district manager in Arizona. Let me introduce the person in Minnesota, not New York. They don't have the same challenge. And just doing that. And then one person knows another person. So it's not like to be out there doing it all the time. If I know you, you're going to say to me, you know, Tom, there's two people you want to know that could help you on this. And again, you don't do it because there's something in it for you. That's simply put, and this this is my way of living my life. You want to do things because it's the right thing to do and it makes you satisfied because you did it. To me, knowing someone's story, Charlie Rose is a great interviewer, as you know, and I had dinner with him years ago. And I said to him, how did you, I understand now you can get anybody you want on your show. Remember he had, I remember he had Shimon Perez followed by, you know, the all the top people in the world. He said, you know, Tom, I started in North Carolina on the radio. And the concept was I've always believed the most interesting thing in the world is a conversation between two people. And now everybody gets to hear it. That's what, that's how I honestly feel. So if you're really introverted and you don't like to have that, you got to start thinking now, what would be the benefit of me understanding what the other person's going through? What would be the benefit of me? You know, I, I spoke at West Point in 2009, that speech is on, on YouTube, but they didn't do the Q&A, but the best question ever at the end, it ties back to this. Young man said, sir, how many people are NetApp when you join? I said, 32. So he said, everyone you're speaking to here, the 43 cadets are selected by the 4,400 as the next great generational leaders of West Point, will be in Iraq with exactly 32 people reporting to us. That's a unit. And whether they live or die will depend upon the decisions we make at 22. What's your advice for us? And no I <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cloud computing, virtualization. No, I was like, whoa. But I said, you know, 
I've never been in your shoes and I don't want to act like I have. I was brought in there because I'm not a military person. They wanted an outsider's view because they have all the military coaching they need. I said, 32 people is not a lot of people. You should know every single one of them, what are their hopes, what are their dreams, and what are their aspirations? Because they know. If you know that about somebody, they know you care. People don't care what you know unless they know that you care. How do you show them you care? So when you think about people that you're around, think about what is their hope? What do they want in life? What are their dreams? And what are they aspiring to? As a leader, I always try to focus on those things when I talk to people. You don't have to ask it directly, but you understand it. And if I, you know I know that, and next time I see you, say, how's that going toward that? You're like, so I, I just think, to me, I didn't do it because I thought it was going to lead somewhere. I did it because it's what I like to do, and I still like to do it. Well, you know, under pressure situations, I get pushback all the time with how much work it is, how much actual time it takes to get to know people, to get to know their hopes and dreams, what's their goals, where, where are they from, that kind of thing. And I get that, you know, very real on one sense, because we're all running and gunning really fast. On the other side, it's a cop out. And I was, it was uncanny how you knew what was going on with Mark Silverman in the world, or you had time to call a janitor. And, and this was before, like, we really had communication tools, right? Uh, you know, call Janner and go, I heard you did such and such and such and such a situation. How do you find that time or how do you, and, and it, I already know the answer to it, but how do you help people find that time? You know, Bill McDermott, there's a book called Contagious Success by Susan Anunzio. And uh, she was a PhD professor at the University of Chicago. And there's a chapter in there on NetApp and me doing what you're talking about, catch someone doing something right. And Bill McDermott called me. Because it said in there, I do 10 calls a day and I did- Service now, Bill McDermott? Yes. At the time, he was SAP. And we're good friends. He said, how do you find the time? I said, Bill, (laughs) how long do you think each call lasts? He's like, not sure. I said, 30 seconds. A minute's a long call. I call Mark Silverman out of nowhere. We don't know each other. Mark, Tom, and those. Oh, Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) What? Now? I'm sitting on the help desk getting pounded. Now the president's called. And I go, and Mark, this is good news. I heard you did this, this, and this. And I know that we may not win this deal. You're a sales guy. But if, if we do what we don't, the only reason we have a chance is you. Thank you. That's a simple message. And a lot of times people will send me an email and say, I was so surprised. Can I have another conversation? Sure. And no one ever kept it a secret. I felt it as, I thought of it as viral culture building. How many people say to me, how do you know so many people in that app? I reach out. I talk to them. And I listen. And it also kept me very close to what was really happening in the company. And I, I ended those calls all the time. I say, hey, Mark, is there other people you think could use a call or deserve a call? Yes. And then I'd write them down. And I, w- I would try to get to them right away. I'd give them all to my admin so I wouldn't miss things. But i try to do 10 a day. 10 a day is 10 minutes. Right. What are you doing? That's what I said to Bill. That is so important. That 10 minutes a day, you can't talk to your own people. He laughed. He said, I'm doing it. So people have adapted this all over the place, but it's very simple, Mark. I just think it's good. To, I believe in a people-centric culture is more powerful than a data-centric culture. And so you have to work at it. You're right. But to me, it, it was the best part of the job. I love those conversations. I learned from them. I could hear one thing from you and go, I didn't know that. You know, I'm trying to do this program. It's just not working so well. Really? Why? Well, that's not I didn't know that. If you're going to sit in a room, wherever your home headquarters is, you're not going to know a lot of stuff. That's how a lot of companies work. Top down directives. I'm smarter than you. Go. 
That's kind of directives are. We got in a room, we all talked for a bit. You know where I was thinking, I know you're thinking, I make a decision. You go in on it. Now we're talking. So I try to push that down to the organization, empower people. I had so many customers say to me, I would give my myself, I said, if you ever need me, call me. You know, in my 20-something years, I think one customer called me. He had just moved to a new job from Wall Street to a big job, another company, and it was over July 4th. We were brand new to him, and he was concerned because it was a trading floor. And I, I opened our factory and shipped extra equipment, which we never had to use. And he never forgot that story. He's told her a million times. But that's the only time. That means our team was able to make the decisions. You empower. And I don't think you can scale companies if you can't build relationships and have them work. It's really interesting. I'm still friends with several of the, of the CIOs and CTOs that I worked with you know, way back when, you know, almost 20 years ago now. And they still mention their relationship with you this many years later, like they, whether they're in contact with you or they follow you. So those, those relationships run really, really deep and, and impactful. It's really cool. You know, Mark, let, me, let me just say one thing. Like yesterday, I reached out to somebody I hadn't talked to in probably 20 years. I saw something on LinkedIn and I said, you know, I just love seeing your name again. I like, boom, boom, boom. We saw it. I do that because I like, I really like to stay in contact with people and I like to follow their stories and I love to see their success. So many people that I knew when they were young salespeople, young this, young that, not a CIO, they were down in the organization. Right. And today, and I'll just send them a note saying, I just really, really am so proud of you and your success. How much time does that take? It takes interest. Don't want anything back. Think about all the best people you know who create relationships with you and they don't want anything from you. They just find you interesting and you find them interesting. You may eventually we may have a conversation. You say, Hey, what do you think about this? Or can you help? Sure. But that's because we have a relationship. That, that was my, that was actually my philosophy as a sales guy. Also is I, every time I talked to anyone in the C-suite, I never needed anything. Never, ever, ever. I was only providing value, only providing value until the day I needed something. And then every single one of them would be like, how can I help Mark? Right? You earned it. Right. You it's, earned it. But I, I was a, it was a conscious effort on my part. What can I provide value for? What can I give? I'm picking up the phone. I'm walking into their office. I have to provide value in some way, shape, or form. And then, and then, and again, it's a part of my personality is, you know, it's hard for, you know, I was a successful salesman, but it's hard for me to ask for things. So I always had to make sure that I had invested enough to earn the right to ask. It's, it's kind of interesting. So let's go back to that room. When you have people in a room back at headquarters, how do you decide who your trusted advisors are and who are just team players? Well, first of all, I want people to state their opinions. If you're not willing, Dan said this one time, Dan Warmer over CEO Netta, if you're not willing to challenge things in this room, we don't need you in the room. Now, our philosophy with candor was very key to how we ran NetApp in the early days. And if you didn't agree with something you had to say, Dan would say, otherwise it goes in cement. Don't come back later. When that door opens, we're on the same page. Decisions made, but in this room, we don't. If you don't believe what I'm saying is correct, you got to say it. So, all my trusted advisors, I felt, had the company's interest at heart first. By the way, I thought that was true of almost all employees. That's what made the culture pretty different. No bozos allowed. <laughs> yeah, no bozos, and you can't be all about you. If when people would interview, I'd say, you know, in that case, it was EMC was our competitor. I'd say they pay more than we do because you have. Bigger goals, they, they have a flow of revenue. And if that's your number one thing, we pay well. They, they may pay you more. That's not, let me tell you what we're about. And I always believe when you interview, if you find, you should feel like you're coming home. 
if you're in the right company. You don't have to go, oh boy, now I got to change my personality to be a good guy. I'm going to work there. I'm not sure I like that. So, but the trusted advisors, it's because I would listen and I would think about who says things that really are meaningful at the right moment, who really has a way of thinking that's different than me. Think about the guys who ran NetApp. Dave, Dave Hitz, James Lau, Dan Wormenhoven, and me. Those three guys are very different from me. They're all engineering by background, right? And Dave has given talks on this. He wrote about it in his book, How to Castrate a Bull. That difference is what made that thing work because we all respected that the other people knew different things. And I think we all learned different things from each other over time. I became better at things that I wasn't so good at. I think they did too. But I honestly think you have to be perceptive about who adds to you. I don't need somebody who agrees with me on everything. Right. I, I do add Rob Samuel was my guy in sales. But Rob would say to me, I don't think the strategy you're doing is the right strategy. Okay. Let's talk about it. So it was kind of natural. What's the best I, way to do it? And what's what what's a good way to challenge and what's a what's a bad way? I think you have to challenge with respect that cannot take any personal shots. You don't do it to embarrass somebody, you don't do it to prove you're smarter than somebody. We've all seen people do that. It's grandstanding. You do it because you, you say, respectfully, Mark, I know this program feels good to you. Out in the field, it doesn't feel that way. You're ready to roll this thing out, a branding program. And that's not what people care about right now. We're trying to get leads to ourselves. They're starving for leads. That is a lot of concern. And if you take six to nine months or a year and most of your budget to do that, I don't think you'll be perceived as effective at a field level. Mm. You can still do it. It's your decision. But that's my input. No, seriously, at the end of the day, you realize that if you run marketing, you run engineering, you, you're going to make your own decision. I owe it to you to give you in, input. And I would, you know, my role was I would travel all the time and I'd see customers and I would say, you know, here's what they're saying at the customer's site. This may sound good to you. Let's roll out SAP. They're concerned about the support of SAP. I don't hear us investing in support. So you could get them very, very happy on a product and then we know nothing about the environment when we fail. So let's, that kind of thing. It's- so so you go into the boardroom and you disagree vehemently with your boss and someone disagrees with you or Dan or, or someone and really it's a hill they want to die on and they lose. What should they do? They really invested in, in what they thought was right and, and, and group decides to go in a different direction. How do you handle being shot down in the group and now what do you need to do? First of all, I think most of those discussions should happen one-on-one. I don't like getting into a big group dynamic on that. Before you go into a board meeting, it's really a big decision. You should meet with all the stakeholders one-on-one. You should know where they're coming from. It shouldn't be, what? And if there really is a disagreement, step back and think about whether they're right or not. You know, <laughs> just because you're vehement about it make it right. Let's say when I went to Notre Dame, one of the things I learned, I went to like every New Yorker, loud, loud and sure. I learned to listen. Holy mackerel, listen to that skill. By the time we got to board meetings on any big decision, we should be pretty socialized on what the hot topic is going to be. If it really is going to be a decision, who has to make it? So let's say it's Dan Warman over. At the end of the day, if you fight for something, you give it your best, and Dan Warman over as CEO of me as president said, Mark, I understand where you come from. It's not that you're wrong. We can't do that now. My experience is you still feel, as long as you were considered, as long as you were given every chance to put your case in front of it, that you'll be okay. It's when it just comes over the top and they go, no, we're not going to do that. What? You didn't even consider it. Or they, that's a bad idea. We're not doing it. That's where people shut down, 
right? You just maybe look bad in front of everybody. You didn't even think about it. I think the as a leader, you need to consider things when people bring them forward. And you can be very direct about how it's going to work or not do it or do it, but you really do have to consider it. Otherwise, people won't come forward with ideas. They'll be like, you tell me what you're going to do. And I've always believed that people act and perform completely differently if they're part of the decision or it's their idea that you just tell them what to do. I didn't want that. You just tell them what to do. Dan said on this on the Morgan Stanley video that we put out when we got that award in 2009, the Leadership Award, Dan said, we always tell people what they have to accomplish and say, how are you going to do it? Let us know what you need. How can we help? That's a very different culture than, okay, Mark, when you wake up, you're going to come here at 8 o'clock. You're going to pound the phone for an hour. This is what you're going to say on that phone. Then we're going to have a group meet. A lot of companies are very much like that. Mm. And I'm not saying right or wrong. I'm saying what we wanted. And a guy like yourself loved it because it basically said to you, look, use your creativity to come back and tell us what we need to do to win as opposed to us thinking what you should do. And we had a lot of marks running around that place, as you know, Greg Collins and other people that were very creative guys. Crazy, but creative. (laughs) (laughs) Rock'em, sock'em robots. Yeah, they (laughs) all. That was like, there's so many stories. That is the very definition of, you know, everything isn't a nail. So a hammer isn't always the tool. Like, like, tell me, tell me what your goals are and how you're going to do it. And what do you, how can we support you? And that, that just frees people up to be themselves and create in a very different way. Back to, back to the meeting, you know, I teach my, my people all the time. If you're surprised at the reaction to something in a meeting, you didn't do your homework. You didn't have the meeting before the meeting. You didn't stack the deck. You didn't understand what what every player needs in the room because they may disagree, not because it's a bad idea, but because of how it impacts their organization. Right. And if you haven't considered that, you're not going to build all all that success. So I think that's brilliant. Yeah. So you're you're hundred percent right. You should go around and meet with all the stakeholders. Make sure you understand their concerns. Think about how you'd address those concerns, as opposed to hearing it for the first time in a dynamic meeting where a decision being made that you haven't done your job. Right. And then and then if you if everybody doesn't agree with you, then it's your job to be the soldier. Once you walk out of that room, you are the voice for the leadership team and you are now towing that line. It's not right. I once, tried. once that door no, once <laughs> that door opens, regardless of how the decision makes, now we're on John Mortgage, Cisco sits on John Mortgage Way. He was the first CEO of Cisco. He was my boss in the 80s before he went to Cisco. And I remember him saying to me, I was, he was now an adjunct professor at Stanford. Bill Barnett was the teacher. And I, I used to speak at their class quite a bit. And he said in front of the class one day, I never viewed NetApp as a great strategy company. He says, but I viewed him as a great execution mm-hmm. company. And I believe that was true. And I think that's more important. I, I think you could debate this forever, but... If you don't execute, you don't know if you had the right strategy. So our thing was, okay, we believe this to be true. And I did this with people all the time. Fence off the risks. Let's go. I had a guy say to me early in my career, I was a 26-year-old. He was just promoting me a district manager, data general. I think it was 10 years younger than anybody else who got that job. And he said to me, I'll bet people say you made great decisions. I'm like, <laughs> glad you noticed. He said, it's absolute bullshit. He goes, Tom, you moved to El Paso College. Texas had a college to be a computer guy. You didn't even know what it was. Two years later, you want to sell big stuff. They won't let you. You quit on the spot without a job. You're selling copiers in Arizona. Then you end up here, and now you're our top guy. You think those are great decisions? <laughs> he goes, but what you do better than other people is when you make a decision, you make it work. You don't look back. You don't go, oh, I wish I had. You execute. 
It's good to know that about yourself. And that's the skill you want. There are no perfect decisions, but once you make it, most people do wrong is they never fully commit to making it work. Mm. That's Lou Holtz spoke at our sales kickoff. Um, and Lou Holtz, that statue back there is a Lou Holtz thing. And he said that when he joined the Jets, people remember he did it. I think he lasted 10 or 11 games. But he went, he said to his wife, I'm going to give this a try. Worst mistake of his life. Right. You already gave yourself an out. So again, you leave that meeting. It didn't go your way. Go execute. And if it's not right, they'll do something different. But you can't be, well, now we'll see how it goes for them. There's no them. It's us. If you really want to rise up and be a significant player in a company, that's how you have to think. That's why my book is called Only Tens. You know, it, it's binary. You're either in or you're out. There's no seven, eights, and nines. You're either in or you're out. 99%'s a bitch, 100% is easy, right? <laughs> yeah. So how do you how do you know if someone's going to be successful on your team? How what what signs do you see that someone's going to falter and isn't going to make it? And what signs do you see of someone who is absolutely going to crush it for you? I like to see how people handle adversity. That's not, anybody can handle good times, and then things turn against you. Whatever that means, you lost an account for political reasons. I've said to people, well, let's figure out what that actually means. Turns out that they were leasing. We didn't understand that. They were going to CFO. We're winning the technical battle. If you understand that, now we can change tactics. But you could sit here forever and go, I'm, I'm the best, but I'm losing because of political reasons, number one. Number two, what's your attitude? Are they consistent? Are they up, down, great when things are great, right in the tank when they're not? How do they affect the rest of the team? Mm. Are they someone that adds value to other people? Are they people that... It's all about them. You know, I, I, as far as being a leader, I said, you would you rather give a plaque or get a plaque? The person who really wants, gets more joy out of helping others as you're doing in your career all through, right? You figured out at some point, I like helping other people with their career. You didn't have to do that. You could have just been an individual contributor, made a lot of money, not worry about anybody. It's what gives you satisfaction. If it truly gives you satisfaction, that's what I look for. Are they somebody who really wants to be someone to develop other people and they get true joy out of that. I think most great sports teams are built on that, building a Golden State Warriors. You look around how they share the ball. Steve Kerr, I saw an interview with him yesterday. They passed the ball more than any other team in the NBA every single Just pass it because he believes he got this from Phil Jackson. You keep everybody involved. If one guy's not seeing the ball, their interest level just comes naturally down. So it's things like that. How do I make everybody successful is important to me. That's what I look for. So, so you're working with someone and you, you know, you've mentored so many people, but let's say you're still in the job and you're mentoring people in a job yep. that are, that's consequential. How do you know when, it's, when, it, when to coach and when to coach out, when to, when to part ways? How can, you, how can you tell when it's working or when it's time to, to, to cut, cut your losses and you know, suggest that they go in a different direction? You know, when someone says to me, we're going to let Mark go, comes in my office and I had this happen. I would say, was Mark a fit when he, we hired him? I mean, you could say no, actually. When we thought about it, he said this on his resume, but he really didn't have that. No, yeah, yeah, he was. Okay. Did we put the resources behind Mark to make him successful? Yes, we have. Does he have a territory for a sales guy that's fair, that he should be doing better? Absolutely. What did he say when you told him he wasn't performing? I can't tell you how many times they go, well, we haven't had that talk yet. <laughs> so your next talk is your God? Right. So let me give you my simple method of making sure that never happens. 
you write strengths and areas of improvement on a piece of paper. This is a Mendoza original that worked for me forever. When I moved to certain levels, I had to make decisions differently, right? Because I'm managing managers, whatever. On the left-hand side, you put strengths, then you put areas or areas of improvement and strengths. doesn't really matter. Those two things. Anybody you want, think of a name or write one thing fast. One thing, whichever way your pen goes, tells you all what to know. There is no great employee where you go to areas of improvement. You'll go to all these things and you go, but in fairness, that's why I don't say weaknesses. In fairness, everybody can have an improvement. If you go, he doesn't do this. And if you did four things, doesn't do, doesn't do, but in fairness, wait, stop right there. Your intuition, which is really your experience, is saying there's a problem with this person. Now, what do you do with it? You go talk to him. You say, hey, Mark, you do so many things well. And I know you aspire to do more here, but there are things you do. And I've had this conversation numerous times. There are things you do that are going to stop that from happening. There are things you do that bother me to the point when I think of you, I think of something negative. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you what it is. I'm going to give you a chance to do something about it. But this is not good for you. I tell them. And I've had probably 70% of the time, they do something about it, and it works. 30% of the time, they say, it's just me. Okay, it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm telling you right now. They don't even say it. They just don't fix it. But I've told them. And so if, if it comes to a time we have to change you're out. I feel like I've done everything I could to give you an opportunity to make it work. It meant, I said, you, an opportunity. Not my job. The one thing I will not work around is a bad attitude. And you know that. It's not my job. I, I was asked in an interview one time. It wasn't my best answer, probably. How do you motivate an unmotivated person? I said, I fire them. Listen to me. I, it's not my job. I hire motivated people and then lead them to a better place. If you... If I, I can't afford to figure out how to wake you up every day and get you excited about being there. If you're not excited, do something else. I'll put somebody in who is, and now we'll lead them. That's it. Very straightforward for me. Attitude, you bring it. you got to come ready to go. Now, we could be struggling on different things. Let's work on those. i got to know you're all in all the time. I'm not going to worry about a person who's not, regardless of how skilled. I did this. I, I gave that talk 20 years ago. just had this guy contact me who ran. It was for computer sciences. Big talk, Pebble Beach, and a guy was a Blue Cross Blue Shield in Michigan. And he says, what would you do? And I tell him. So he calls me up a week later. He says, I have to, or two. He says, that was the worst advice anybody's ever given me. I said, <laughs> he went back. He had the CTO. He said, what if, what if he was a leader in your company? Everybody, he treated people poorly. Everybody didn't like him, but he was really, I mean, he's your best guy. I said, I'd get him out of that job. You don't have to fire him. You cannot have a leader that you describe like that. Without people looking at you like, that's you. So he took the guy out of the job. The guy quit. He's like, it's the worst advice. Call me back less than two weeks later. And he said, you're not going to believe what happened. What happened? He came back. Really? He's an individual contributor. He's happier than ever. I said, how did the rest of the team react spectacularly well? And guess what? Their view of me has changed. Can't work, especially in leadership. You cannot have big people with bad attitudes unless that's your attitude. That's not you. And I don't want to know you. <laughs> That's when I get uh, called in is it usually is this person is super talented. They're really great at this, you know, they, these problems, but they have no people skills or no leadership skills or they're a bull in a China closet. What can you do with the mark? And that's my favorite, right? That's my favorite. And I, I got a pretty good hit rate of, of turning people around and showing. Cause again, once you show someone their impact, so like one of the, one of the guys that I worked with, he was, he was just awful to people. I said, your job for the two weeks until we talk again is to walk into a room 
and see how people react when you walk in the room. Do they light up? Do they close down? Do they talk to you? Do they stop talking? Do they leave? What happens? Just walk into the room and and see how they react. He was shocked, shocked. He said, I have never noticed that people just quiet down and start walking out of the room when I'm around. And that was, you know, once he saw his impact on people, he wanted to change. But it's getting that people to see that. And and now, like, you know, we've been working together now for two years. And he's like, loves the people part of his job is his favorite part because he gets so much back that he didn't know was a thing before. So it's really, it's cool. You know, it's it's interesting about what you do and how you just described that. You're actually helping people on their self-awareness, which is a very, very critical thing. And it's a killer to people if they don't have it because everyone else needs it. But a lot of people have a just a lack of self-awareness of how they hit people, what people really think of them. And they think they should have this big job. And everybody else is like, oh, Jesus. Right? But what you're doing there is very, very valuable because you're, you're helping them in a way that they can accept. Become, if you become more self-aware, you are much more likely to grow into a very, in a significant way. But if you don't, you're not, you're going to be the same. You know, people change jobs, change companies. And within six, within 90 days, if you ask people what their strengths and areas of improvement, they're the same. New people see it right away. Doesn't listen, doesn't do this, doesn't do that. And you can't figure out why you're switching jobs. And you can't get anybody to do what you want. They all look at you the same. If you're doing what you're talking about, that that means six months or a year later, people would describe you very differently. Yeah. Bad, I think bad behavior is almost always unconsciousness, fear, or unresolved childhood trauma. And 90% of the time it's unresolved childhood trauma. But you know, that's that's a that's a that's a much deeper discussion. So right. what did what did Dan Hormanhoven make you better at? Give me a what, lot. give me some things that that he took this raw material of this motivated, you know, bright, creative guy. What did he, how did he improve you? First of all, he was the first CEO or prior to that, let's say worldwide head of sales when I was coming up that without question said, I have your back. Mostly CEO, because I had been a CRO a couple of times and they were all engineers at that point in tech. Every, and most of them didn't respect sales. They just didn't. They didn't respect, they thought it was easier than it was. They couldn't understand why you couldn't forecast exactly the day something would come in. Meanwhile, they'd let engineering schedules slip six months without blinking. Well, that's a tough job. (laughs) (laughs) That guy works for you. He set the schedule. You can't understand why I can't get American Express to give me an order. They've never done business before in the time frame I want. I had that happen in that stratus. But anyway, Dan said to me in our first conversation, I'd never met him. He just got hired. He was the only guy I didn't know that got that interview got hired. And he says, you a football fan, Tom? I said, yeah, I was in Dallas, Texas. He said, I'm going to, in the early 90s, I'm going to make you my Emmett Smith. I'm going to give you, the, I said, I know, he knew a lot about me. He'd done his work. I'm going to give you the ball so you can't carry it anymore. You tell me what you need, I'll do it. Never heard that before. And he How did that never, help you, though? How did that improve you? Well, because now I really felt empowered to do what I believed I knew how to do. In the past, I always had to kind of work through and around how they they wanted the company run. I knew it wasn't right. So it took me quite a long time. Until walking in the door, I was able to just say, let's go, number one. Number two, Dan is much more analytical than me. If you don't inspect, they don't respect, was one of the say. I put a plaque together for Dan and said, in God we trust, all others bring data. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, well, I learned how to utilize data to my advantage without hurting my other skills. 
and I wasn't that much. It was more feel and this is what I believe. But being able to utilize the data and talk to Dan about stuff like that, Dave hits and get their perception of things I was thinking about really made me much more of a rounded senior thinker than just a sales guy. You know, I understood my my function really well, but I got involved in all kinds of discussions with them that really had nothing to do with sales was a component, but it was more about even what products we were going to do and how to do them. And, and listening to them think, really the three of them, was a blessing to me. So by the time I became president, which was six years later, I felt like I was really a different executive than when I entered the company. When I entered the company, it was all about hiring, regional managers down to districts. I had U.S. for one year, then I had worldwide. After one year, the unfortunate gentleman who ran international was a good friend of mine, died of lung cancer, never smoked, got it from Agent Orange during the Vietnam War. He was a pilot. And Dan said, would you take global? I said, I don't need any more travel. Look, I have no experience, but I'll do it. And But if look, if you find a more experienced guy you want, I have no issue not doing it. Just make sure I have something to come back to. And uh, that turned out not to be the case because I found out in each country, I just kind of found my Mark Silverman or my Tim Pitcher at the time, and I backed them. I found out what they needed. It wasn't that I knew how to sell a product. I knew how to make the company react. But I, I learned from them about these different things. That's where the relationship, those guys all lasted 10, 15 years at NetApp, each of the hires in the country. So I just found out that Dan's, Backing his intellectual powers off the chart, as are Dave and James. And the, the way they were different. See, I, I had worked for different people before, but I was never in those discussions mm. at that level, nor did I respect them or they respect me enough to be in it. They, you know, they were like, if we were winning, they were like, our sales is simple. We were losing. Oh, it's your fault. You know, something was wrong. It's your fault. That wasn't how Dan approached it. So the confidence he gave me, Mark, allowed me to grow wow. in a you know, there were no second meetings. If I said something, that was that was the decision. Dan never overturned any decision. That, you know, here's a great discussion. So I get asked this, Mark. Okay, you were president, sales guy, working for an engineer, CEO. It worked better than that partnership lasted 20 plus years. What was the secret? I'll tell you the secret. I said to Dan, what things do you want your opinion on that report to me? Remember, more and more report before I do it. I didn't say, what do you want to make a decision on? It puts to me, what, but what do you want your opinion on? Without hesitation, he said, anything that has to do with organization, meaning Japan's going to report to the CEO, Japan's going to report to this. We're going to go channel. We're not going to go channel. Those are structural. And if you quit or get hit by a bus, I got to live with it. I'd like my opinion heard. Key personnel, up or out. If you're going to do something, I'm going to promote Mark. I'm going to let Mark go. I'd like, you know that I know them, the key personnel. I'd like my opinion heard. And his opinion could change my opinion. That was it. Mm. That's it. Any other decision. And by the way, I asked. So back then we did voicemail. We didn't have email yet. And the rule we had was I would send him a voicemail. And if he didn't respond in 24 hours, I'd make whatever decision I was going to want to make. Mm. Do you know that that never happened? That never, that he didn't, number one. Number two, I asked his opinion on a lot of other stuff but I didn't have to. And everyone knew I didn't have to. So if I said in a meeting, you really guys really think this is the way to go? We're doing it. No one went, I wonder what Dan's going to say. How many companies did people want to hear? Right. They go, we'll see how it goes after. I mean, it was over. So we could execute, go back to John Mortgage. The only reason you could execute is we quickly got on the same page and went. So two things for Dan that he needed to be able to be that way was one, he needed the maturity and security in himself and who he is. And then he had to have the trust in 
you or his people that in you know in that fashion and that's really hard to establish but especially that that trust in yourself that you don't have to have your fingers in everything you just need to know which things you need to have the pulse on in order to run the company it's a it's a very mature way yep. of, of doing what leadership skill did you lack or what will you do what did what have you done in your career that you were bad at and had to improve and changed i don't think i was particularly good at studying metrics and being predictive because of metrics i just didn't like it that's not a good reason not to do it and i put people around me eventually that could explain it to me in a way that i could take in very quickly like here's the three things you need to worry about these three so i'm not an accounting i, I wish i had an account accounting course at some point in my life i didn't so it took me a while to understand what i'm looking at that mattered on a sheet right you know and when you're in that case you try to avoid it mm -hmm. right so i started to realize at a certain point i couldn't avoid it so i but i had people around me and i asked questions like i'd fly with dave hits somewhere and we talk about stuff that he knew that i didn't know not so much technology you know i could understand that over time it's more the financial aspects of the business which become more important as you're making company decisions it never was a huge inhibitor but it was something that i i really wasn't very good at at all when i got there because no one had ever given it to me i mean literally i was a sales guy that's how they viewed it they didn't bring me into the other parts of the business when i first got there i still was the sales guy but over time i had more time to understand that stuff and dan was spectacularly good at it he taught dave and james and then i i came along last <laughs> Yeah, I do these personality tests to help leadership teams learn how to deal with their difference, how to communicate, you know, what things, what verbal and nonverbal mean and all that stuff. And you were, you're a, you're a people person with three engineers, right? Two different languages. And you seem to do naturally, especially probably with your curiosity and humility, because, you know, as, 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 as sure as you are and as, as balls to the wall you are in one area, your curiosity and your humility, I think, is what actually makes it work for you to be in that room. How did, how did you find translating what, how they were talking, what they found important, and being a productive part of that meeting? The reason it worked, Mark, is I was definitely the most people-centric person, but they really, really appreciated people. They didn't approach it the same way. That wasn't true of my previous bosses necessarily. They treated people as if they were disposable. That does not go with me. So I found myself buffering my people from them. I knew they didn't care. Mm -hmm. it drove me crazy they didn't care. But I made it work in my organization. Here, they cared. Day one. Day one. Dan held a kickoff a month after he joined. I had just had a kickoff. Well, you know, five guys in a phone booth. It wasn't a big company. But he joined in November, and we had a kickoff right away. And he, he stood in front of the whole company and said, this is the year of sales. He said, there's only two things we're going to invest in, engineering and sales. The rest of you get used to it. We need to make this product, and he's got to sell this product, for the rest of it doesn't matter. If they do a great job, there'll be money for everybody. And he, the sales team sitting there, he goes, whatever Tom tells me you need to do, we're going to do it. I was like, oh, my God. But they were people. They, they understood. They were clear. And when we were in private, there was no difference in discussion. They would always say, Whatever topic we brought up, Tom would go, but what about, how is that going to hit the people? How I would look at it, you know, we're going to reorg this, we're going to do that, we're going to buy it. How is that going to work from a people perspective? They've always, we'd have that discussion. They would do the mechanics, and I would go, well, how does that work? 
right? They knew that intuitively in the engineering. They were legendarily good, but they always were people people, which not all engineers were, but to this moment. You know, Dan, I just flew to California last week to celebrate Dan's 50th wedding anniversary. And Dave and James were there with me. You know, here we are this many years later, best friends. Jeff Allen was there, who was kind of our COO. I remember Jeff. And we were all there together. It was so great to see each other again. You know what I mean? That's not true of a lot of companies. And we're laughing together, but it was Dan's 50th wedding anniversary. and all kinds of friends we didn't know. It's just, it's if you all care about the same thing, in my opinion, it was the first I ever was actually around all guys who said, what about the people on any decision? And people knew that. I think you knew that when you worked there. People working there knew that we cared about them. Everybody. It wasn't just Tom. I was the outward representation of that. It was more natural for me. All of those guys cared a lot about it. We only had to do, you know, after the dot-com, we did our first layoff. They cried in the room when we were talking about it. He said, this this is really hard for me. I said, yeah, I know. That's good. It's not hard. That's really bad. That conversation you and Dan had, forgot the venue. I'll put the link in the in the show notes where you were interviewing and having a conversation with each other. Yeah, Notre Dame. Notre Dame. You, that was your, yeah, your, your leadership series. That, mm-hmm. that conversation, I have shared that conversation where when things went south and you had to do those layoffs and how you found out who you were as people and as a company through those hard times was one of the most inspiring business conversations I've ever heard. Because again, companies are going through all kinds of turmoil since COVID, you know, and it may not be business, but there's something and how they, how you show up just tells you who you are as a company and who you are. I was, I was in the speaker series. Notre Dame asked me if I would do a speaker series. I gave the first talk and they met me bring speakers. I said, I the, the dean of the business school, Dean Kremers, I said, I think a more interesting thing is a conversation with. I'm so blessed to get in these conversations with people that I can't tell you how many times I've said, boy, it'd be cool if other people could hear this. That one with Dan, which was the sixth of the series, I mean, was so special to me. And he brought up points that were so, because we, I mean, all these people I've known 20 years or more, but Dan and I went through all this together. And that discussion about what happened when it was really went tough. You know, what's tough? Stock went from 156 to 6. That's pretty tough. After going, go public at 12, 424 in splits, 156 to 6. Revenue, 250 million to a billion in two years. We think we're going to 1.5 conservatively. It goes to 800 because of the dot com. We had hired for that. That's what you're faced with. The reason went to 6, people said they're done. They're going out of business. They just celebrated their 30th year, right? So many years later. That was year 2000. But Dan, Dave, James, I'll tell you one other thing we did, Mark, around that time, which I, I advise people to do, and it's worked incredibly for the company. We made a pact that we would go to dinner once a month. Regard, and I was traveling like a maniac. Dan traveled a lot. I remember flying in from Japan and going right to dinner. We would not miss that dinner. No outside. So one meeting a month where there's no agenda, there's no in a boardroom. Mark, what are you seeing? What? You know, during the layoff, after the layoff, as we started to grow, what's working, what's not, we laughed a little bit, we did this, and somebody goes, you know, I've been thinking about this. Think about it. And if we agreed, it changed the next morning when we walked into the office. And it has an enormous positive impact. And that's one reason I think we're so close as friends. But there's so many people running companies that never socialize. They never get together and just without, they're always doing it in a room. It charts. It all comes down to how much do you trust each other? 
And you said, if I'm going to trust other people, like how they can trust if we don't trust each other. I believe people looking at the four of us knew that we were in it together. It, and we really were. There was never a moment I didn't feel that, nor did they. We had that talk at Dan's wedding. The four of us would have done anything for each other. It was, you know, for me, it was a religious, like I had never experienced anything like that. And, you know, again, I thought I would die in that company because I had found, I had found home, right? I had found, I had, it was, it was, it was really remarkable. And I do remember my manager at another company saying, Mark, you were at NetApp. That was special. You're never going to find that again. And uh, (laughs) the closest thing I found was data domain. Data domain was amazing. A lot of ex NetApp people, very, very similar to, and then we got bought by EMC. Again, we tried. We yeah. tried. I, they have more money. They have more I, money. I remember. I remember. I remember. I still had Dan's uh, phone number in my phone, and I texted him. I said, "Please find some bias, please." And he texted me back. He says, "I'm looking in the couch for change." I still remember that. <laughs> right back when, he, like, like, he still actually answered my text. You know, even though I wasn't working for the company, it was it was hilarious. That's cool. I'm going to ask one last question, and then I'm going to let you go. So you had two beautiful children a little later in life. And I'm curious, what has having children changed in your perspective on your work life, on your career way back when, and your leadership skills? If you look back and you know who you are now as dad, what changed? What, what shifted for you? First thing that comes to my mind, I don't think I've ever been asked that before. It's a very cool question. I have a different view of my mother. <laughs> I, always, I always was super, super close with my father, and I didn't have any kind of bad relationship with my mother. But now I look back to growing up in a one-room apartment in New York City, didn't have a bathroom in it, you know, my brother on a couch, bathed in a sink, and she's raising us, me and brother, two years apart, before the two sisters came, and then we moved to Long Island. She never complained about any of that. Now that I have kids, and I have help and all this stuff, and it's hard. <laughs> I'm like, wow. So I, Point one. Point two, I never, you know, obviously most people have kids much younger and they they don't get to see their kids all the time. Obviously, that's how most people's lives are, especially if you have any kind of life like I would travel. I wouldn't have done that job with kids. I wouldn't have done it the way I did it. I always flew over 250,000 miles a year my first 20 years. 375, my last year as president, was 25,000 circumvents the globe. Well, if you don't have kids, it's just travel. It's just like, what's the difference? So I feel blessed now that I get to see them one seven one three and be such a part of their lives is incredible to me. And when I think about this, again, goes back to relationships. Now I feel even more blessed to have the relationships I have with all my friends. And it kind of, we talk about it differently. I, I You know, people say the miracle of birth, unless you've actually done it, it's just a, oh yeah, yeah, the miracle of birth. I got it. Whoa, it turns out that's a big moment. Well, now that I look at my friends and they're raising their kids, it actually gives me a different perception of them, people who worked at NetApp. And when we talk a lot, I ask them about their kids. And I really mean it. I mean, I'm, inter- I'm taking a real interest in their families. Before it was just a, hey, how's your family? That's great. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of the things that we talk about, you and I, and we have breakfast, we had great breakfast recently just chatting really are interesting to hear how people who have raised their families, I get to learn from them. You know, as I'm going through things, I say, you know, you guys have done this before. What worked for you? And it's really helpful with people you trust and know, and you see their kids are really good kids. 
I just think it's an extension of the same thing. You know, this all to me has been one unbelievable positive experience. It's not like everything's always good. Of course not with anybody. But I just feel like I have so many positive things happen in my life because of people. And this is just whether it's my family, friends, you know, as you know, I live in New York City. I just love having all the people come through here all the time. And I'm, I constantly see people because you come through here for business. Even though, like you said, I, I retired from that app August 20, 2019. I'm as busy as I want to be. I'm on the board of three companies. I'm very active with them. I do a ton of mentoring. I'm very involved with Notre Dame. But it's all, my schedule is what I want it to be. Nice. And, I, and my family is such an important part of it. It's just so cool. <laughs> I remember my, my first mentor when I was waiting tables at the Four Seasons, the vice president of the Four Seasons mentored me and helped me move into a professional position kind of late in life. But I said, you know, really appreciate this. He says, you know, just come visit me in the, uh, in the old age home when I'm drooling on myself and that we'll call it a deal, right? <laughs> to live a life the way you have and to create the relationships you have right? It's always, I have a, I have a 95 year old friend who was a Holocaust survivor and he meant, and he still mentors 20 guys, right? So his life is going to be rich until the day he croaks, right? And hopefully it's another 10 years, but it building these relationships and having that richness in your life is as successful as the millions of dollars that you made. No doubt. It's what, it's what you remember looking back. You're going to look back at the other day you want to live a life you're proud of. I've said this before on different things. It's not about other people being proud of you. That's a, that's an epiphany I had in 1989. I was at Stanford for their SEP program, and you're back out of your job, and, you're, and I was thinking about this, and I was realizing I was living my life to make other people proud. It was really important to me. Somebody said to me, why is it so important that other people are proud of you? I was, just, I was like, isn't that the goal? And he didn't even answer. I went, that's not the goal. You get later in your life and you look back, if everybody else is proud of you, you don't think you live the life you want to live, that would not be a good day. Mm. And so I, somebody asked many, many years ago, somebody said, what's on your bucket list? I said, I don't have one. If it's important enough, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> because as you know, a lot of people have bucket lists never get to it. Healthcare, whatever happens, happens. If it really is something you desperately want to do, quote unquote, bucket list, let's go do it. Tom, thanks for doing this. I appreciate your friendship and I appreciate your willing to share your wisdom and everything everything that you and I do together. So thank you for, do, for being here. As you know, I'm very happy for your success, Mark. You're doing terrific work. So thank you. So over over 20 some odd years ago, maybe 20, 20, yeah, 25 years, 24 years ago, I talked my way into a job. I got turned down four times to go to NetApp. It was network compliance then. And I talked my way into the job. I told them they had the right guy, the wrong resume, because I did not have the experience and I had no business getting that job. And it changed my life in so many ways. So if there's something that you want and that you know it's right for you, and you listen to this conversation, you got my support to give it everything you got. 99% is a bitch. 100% is easy. Commit, go for it, do it. Uh, thank you for taking the time and listening. I love you a ton. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you for joining today's conversation. If you got value, please share the episode, give us a thumbs up, write us a review. And if there's a topic you'd like us to cover or a question that you have, send them my way. Look forward to connecting on the next episode of the Rising Leader Podcast.